I think in terms of transactions, we were probably close to like 80 transactions in total, including wholesaling. Jesus. And that's over two years, three years? Over two years. It's over two and a half years, yeah. So it's like and then, every week or two, you're... Yeah, it was go, go, go. Okay. Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> when, 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 when I was broke, I had rich habits. Uh. When I was broke, I had rich habits. Uh. Hey guys, welcome to part two of this week's episode of Master Keys Podcast. Today, we have an amazing set of guests, Martin and Lynn of Mealy Properties. They started here in Atlantic Canada in New Brunswick and grew a portfolio of around 35 doors as well as wholesaled hundreds of properties, it sounds like, made seven figures and then immediately shifted gears, moved to the States and have gotten into storage where they're now looking to get into $20 million deals. So we asked them a ton of questions. We get into all of this right now. So stay tuned and listen, guys. Yeah, awesome. Okay, so we're, we're changing lanes here, the second part of uh, the episode for this week. And we have guests, which we're super excited about. So uh, Martin and Lynn, um, welcome. Welcome to Master Keys. Thanks for having us, guys. We're so excited to be here. Thank you so much. Yeah. 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 Do you want to start by maybe just telling us in one sentence each, who are you? Uh, all right, I'll start. Uh, my name is Lynn. I'm a self-storage developer here in um, the United States. My background is in multifamily, and I'm originally from Montreal, but I live in Las Vegas now. My name is Martin May. I just uh, wash the dishes for Lynn. That's really all I do. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, no, that's what we do. We're 50-50% uh, partners on life and also on business. So we develop self-storage facilities from the ground up. And that's, yeah, and we do it through a syndication looking to launch a fund uh, in the near future as well to do this at scale. And you also started in Canada. That's correct, Mark? We did. Okay, so you guys were in Canada together first. Yeah. Um, you mentioned right before we hopped on uh, that you guys were in New Brunswick to begin with? Yeah. So is that it, where the investing journey began? It, it definitely is. So it, it kind of began a little earlier. My, my father, for example, has always been a developer in Algeria. When we moved to Canada, he's done a lot of flipping, smaller residential, smaller multifamily. So I got to kind of shadow him and learn a lot from him. Um, cool. Martin bought his first duplex in Montreal right before we met. So that's kind of like our first oh, right okay. ever venture that we kind of did together. Um, and then yep. I moved to Moncton for school and ended up buying properties in uh, in Moncton because renting didn't make enough enough sense for me. So buying was the better option. It was actually cheaper to purchase than to to rent there. So that's kind of where it all started. And how long ago was that? Uh, that was about three years ago now. Oh my gosh! So this is a pretty quick turnaround. And then Martin, did you follow to New Brunswick as well? Yeah, it was very much, uh, we, we came across New Brunswick together and we realized, you know, it doesn't make sense to rent, as Lynn said, and we uh, very much, you know, packed up the car and we left Montreal together, <laughs> which is realized, you know, New Brunswick is a much better market. And it's, it was also, you know, that's about the time we were learning the advanced real estate strategies, such as wholesaling, finding off market properties. Uh, we just realized that New Brunswick was, you know, on the verge of booming. Um, this was around 2020. And we felt like there's so many wholesalers. There were so many people that are doing event stuff in, in Ontario, but nobody was really aggressively going after the East Coast. Um, right. So that that was kind of the opportunity that felt just that no one else was paying attention in New Brunswick, kind of. That's degree. that's exactly it. And just like you guys, mm-hmm. you guys have an amazing podcast and platform. We actually we built a YouTube channel centered around New Brunswick real estate because we felt like you know nobody was talking about this market. Um, mm. and, and that's, you know, where we all started. Interesting. So was it like when you guys got to New Brunswick, you're like, this stuff is so cheap. Like, mm-hmm. how can we go wrong? Is that kind of what the mindset that got you started? And did you buy being like, okay, the model we want to do is Burr or you mentioned wholesaling, like kind of what was, what was, I guess you said the first one you bought because you were looking at rent and were like, I might as well just buy this place. Cause mortgage payment would probably be similar. And if you buy a duplex, you're probably living for close to free. Was yeah, it that we, or what were, did you go in with an objective to be like, okay, we're going to burr 10 of these things. And then did wholesaling kind of fall in your lap or did you go there being like, we're going to start wholesaling aggressively to people from Montreal. Give us yeah. a bit of background on that. It really started because I was looking for a rental and I just couldn't find anything that made sense. I was in a much smaller city. It was about 160 people in, in Moncton, New Brunswick, which is where I was staying. But the rent was very similar to what I would pay in Montreal. And I just didn't think it made sense at the time. I'm like, how am I paying the same mm. thing for this small city where I could be paying the same exact amount of rent in Montreal? And then I looked yep. a little deeper and we realized, hey, like the purchase price is so much lower. And I'm, my mortgage payments would be much lower if I were to buy a property than if I were to rent somewhere. Um, and, and did then you trying house hack to- it? 
Okay. So trying to purchase a property was actually really hard because everybody was overbidding, right? We could get mortgages for very, very, mm -hmm. very cheap. So people were putting in offers over asking thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars over asking, and every property mm -hmm. we would try and put an offer on, we would just get outbid by somebody else. And that's when we transitioned to wholesaling. Is that so? Sorry, that's in twenty twenty. Then is that pre post COVID? That'd be post COVID, I'm guessing. That's when it started opening like, back up. So end of twenty twenty. Okay, that's when we right. started building the wholesaling company. Um, okay. so for us, just finding these properties was really hard, but we thought if we go off market, if we go direct to seller, then we won't have to overbid and we won't have to compete with other people and putting these offers. So we educated ourselves over wholesaling. We listened to podcasts, we listened to videos. Uh, Martin used his marketing background to, to, to do all like the website, the outreach, the uh, marketing campaigns, all of that. And we built that wholesaling company for us to be able to get properties, but to help other investors that are out of province that don't have boots on the ground, they're looking to purchase these deals. So that was the whole thing so at first. Did, did you keep the property in Montreal and then did you ultimately buy a house through traditional real estate or you bought something off market in, in Moncton? Yeah, great question. Uh, so what we started with, uh, you know, in Montreal, that property, you know, that's actually where we house hacked, right? So, I live in one room and rented out all the other rooms. Um, and, oh, wow. and, and yeah, so in New Brunswick, before we moved there, uh, because of, you know, the COVID lockdown, we couldn't even get to the province without purchasing a property. Uh, so because, oh, yeah, of, that's right. because of what was happening <laughs> right, in New Brunswick, right, right. right? So many buyers were really active. The interest rates were low. Uh, we actually got forced out of the Moncton market. We essentially picked up this fourplex in St. John, New Brunswick. And we did exactly the same thing. So we live in one room out of that fourplex and we rented out all the other rooms and the units. Uh, so that's essentially what got us to cross the border even. Uh, but as soon as we're in New Brunswick, um, you know, that's when we you know, really started being aggressive with our off-market search. And we still have that duplex. Do you mm -hmm. sell the duplex? Did we you do. keep any other real estate in New Brunswick? We did. So we actually, we bought a lot of multifamily with uh, joint venture partners. So we got other people who were looking to purchase, but who weren't there physically and who didn't want to run it themselves, wanted to be more passive. Mm -hmm. We partnered with them and we bought a portfolio of multifamily units um, in New Brunswick. So what? So basically, so you moved to New Brunswick, you bought the units, uh, the four unit, you guys were living in there. Then was your objective to try and refi that to buy more? Or like you said, you started doing the wholesaling to give you some cash flow to buy how did that like kind of how did you guys make the decision to go into wholesaling? Was it that you, an amazing deal came up that you felt that, you know, we don't have the cash to buy this right now. So we want to make some cash off it. And here's a really smart way of doing it. Because I think I would say a lot of people see great deals and they're like, well, I, I can't buy it. So they just pass it up. Mm -hmm. Kind of how did you know to to try and wholesale it? And what gave you the confidence and idea that you really could? Yeah, uh, great question. At the beginning, uh, we very much, you know, built that off-market channel to purely um, wholesale, but also look for deals for ourselves. Because we're like, okay, if everyone sees what we see, which is New Brunswick is a great rental market and that we should absolutely buy some properties. And they're also experiencing the frustration of getting overbid. That means there is a real need for off-market properties and the pipeline of these wholesale deals. So that's really what we saw being the biggest opportunity. So, so that's why we started, you know, sending out mailers. We, we knocked on doors. We did driving for dollars. We did all of that driving up and down mountain, different streets, different neighborhoods. Uh, but whenever we came across the first, I remember the first probably five to seven deals, we just wholesaled everything because we're like, you know what? We, we need that proof of concept. We need to know that, okay, buyers, you know, we're not crazy. We, we just want to prove to ourselves that we're not crazy and this is a proof of concept and that we can actually make, you know, some substantial money from this. Um, and the first couple of deals, for example, you know, the first deal was a side-by-side -side duplex. Uh, we got it under contract for 170,000 and we wholesaled it for, for 12 grand. But in hindsight, we could have charged a lot more because, uh, you know, they refied at 350 a year later. Um, so a lot of that really, you know, the confidence, we, we had no confidence going in. <laughs> we just wanted that proof of concept. Um, I still remember when we sent out that, that lead, uh, sorry, sent out that deal to our buyers list, which is like probably 20 people at the time. And I was just like shaking and I, I kept on mm -hmm. checking my phone. I was like, Lynn, like, I, I just said this. It was five <laughs> minutes ago. Nobody responded. I don't think this is going to work. We should move back to Montreal. So I was like, <laughs> relax. It's been five minutes. Give it some time. <laughs> so, so I understand how you, how you generated the the list of potential wholesale properties, right? You know, just good old grinding away. How did you generate the list of potential buyers? Organically at first. So it was mostly, you know, posting on Facebook groups, mostly reaching out to people in Ontario. Most of our buyers actually came from different provinces, Ontario, Quebec. So it was really a matter of like 
getting into these groups, talking to people, networking with them, uh, but mainly online for, at first, posting through these wholesale uh, groups. Um, and then eventually we started doing a little more marketing. We put our website out there, did some online SEOs and stuff like that just to gather more people. I, what was interesting, I'd love to dive a little deeper in that. So online, reaching out to people. Um, our biggest influencers were, you know, Matt McKeever, Austin Ye at the time, right? So we would look up, you know, who will follow them on Instagram. And then we essentially DM every people that will follow them. So that's what we did on the social media side. But on the other end, you know, copywriting, coming up, coming up with the website, um, I was really into, you know, essentially consolidating a bunch of education resources that were really helpful for, for, for us. Um, you know, the different podcasts or bigger pockets. So I wrote a blog post about, hey, these were the resources that kind of taught us everything we knew. And we tagged all these people. And these people, um, essentially, you know, Mama Kieber and them, they all shared that blog post, this article about them that I wrote. And, uh, you know, the domain name was New Brunswick Property Deals. So that was, you know, another way that we did. And also, as I said, the YouTube channel. Um, so our YouTube channel, our approach was, we just realized there's nobody talking about New Brunswick. So as auto province investors, we have so many questions about, you know, the tenancy laws, the different neighborhoods. So what we started doing was we started interviewing people on the ground. So brokers, property managers, you know, insurance agents, we asked them the questions that we, you know, we were just genuinely, you know, confused about. And we just recorded everything similar to this format. And we just literally put it on the YouTube channel. So people that watch a video called, you know, best neighborhoods in Moncton for rental, you know, these are your qualified buyers. These are the people that are interested in the Moncton market. You know, people just don't go on YouTube to look up, you know, what Moncton real estate market is all about. So we ended up, you know, getting buyers that way, which is really interesting. Um, yeah. And we obviously also, you know, did a copy pasting of uh, email of Facebook groups, all of that too. <laughs> so Yeah. Yeah. No, that's awesome. That's actually really smart. Um, it's almost like it seems so obvious, but sometimes people don't just automatically go to areas like that or to kind of follow the chain of command of like, if these people are watching this and they're clearly, they're going to be interested in buying. Um, did you find once you get the first deal closed or I guess wholesaled, did that result in, or a few deals closed and wholesale, did that result in getting kind of a growing client base on its own? Because I find like, okay, you do one client really well, then they, they chat with their friends or whatever. And now you start getting calls off of that. Is that kind of what it grew into where you kind of had just a network kind of growing on its own? from people that all were like, oh, these guys can hook you up with a good wholesale deal? We very much focus on investor relations at a time. Um, after every deal that will close, we actually, Lynn and I will film a little video, um, you know, put down a QR code and print it out, print out the QR code, put it in the box. We'll buy champagnes, we'll buy chocolate, we'll buy all kinds of candy because we want a positive <laughs> association with our name and also with New Brunswick. We even had a little printout design. We're saying, hey, like, good Smart. job. Like, Congrats on buying in the, the hottest market, you know, in, in Canada. And also you can't, you know, buy land anymore. Where, what, what was the quote, Lynn? But no, we it was buy land. They can't make any more of it. Something like That's that. That's right. <laughs> so, we, we, you know, we present a little, smart, smart. right, present. And it's super personalized, you know, with the recorded video saying that, you know, thank you so much for supporting this. And so, so we did a lot of that investor relations, which, you know, gave a wow factor. But also the deal really spoke for themselves, right? Like the cash flow that you can get in New Brunswick at the time. It's unheard of in, in, in for Ontario. It made buyers. it easy. It yep. made it yep. very easy. Yep. That's right. I, it, this is all really interesting because I actually had a call with uh, a listener who's been looking at different areas to invest because they're based in the GTA and it just doesn't make sense there. And they they listen to the podcast and they wanted to reach out about investing here in Nova Scotia. And because of a few things that are that, that are going on here with rent control, um, you know, the pricing, all all these things. Certainly in Halifax, it's become a bit price prohibitive, despite the fact that our rents are so, so high. And we turn the conversation to New Brunswick um, because New Brunswick also has high rents, especially relative to the purchase price. So it is a really intriguing market. And I think they're a little bit more lenient with respect to some of the rent controls and, and all of these things that we're really burdened with uh, here in, in Nova Scotia. Um, and I, I don't want to talk too much about New Brunswick because I understand you're, you're no longer in New Brunswick. We're going to talk about that in a second. Um, but do you still maintain that connection to, to New Brunswick? Are you still running these deals remotely? We still have a portfolio there. We're not actively wholesaling anymore. Um, we have a, there's a couple other people that are doing that still in New Brunswick. And sometimes they'll ask us for like our opinion or for our help. We kind of connect people a little bit. I have a realtor license too in New Brunswick. So I would refer other investors to different realtors as well. But that's really the extent of what we're doing in New Brunswick right now. We're fully focused on our U.S. ventures. 
and, and Neil Chandler, like what we realized is Lynn and I, we're so similar. We're like type A people. If we don't wholeheartedly believe in the asset type or a market for ourselves, it's really hard for us to have any association with it. Like we, we just, you know, you might be thinking, you know, we actually built out a whole team. We had, you know, VAs, we had acquisition managers, disposition manager. We also invested, um, you know, we did, it's impossible to skip trace in, in Canada, but we actually, you know, looked up property owner address by address. So we literally have a database of, you know, over a hundred thousand addresses and linking back to where the owner lives all, all across North America. So they, they own the property in Moncton, New Brunswick, but they live in Nashville, Tennessee. We, we have their Nashville, Tennessee address. So we, we have all of that done. But we found a way. just kind of let that go to waste because Lynn and I, you know, we don't wholeheartedly believe in this anymore. We, we believe that self-storage um, development, it's, you know, the asset type that we want to focus our energy on. So that's why we just pretty much cut it cold turkey. <laughs> So when you're saying you don't believe in it, what you, you didn't think it was scalable anymore, you thought or you think the market shifted there or what changed? There's a couple of different things. So the market definitely shifted, but that wouldn't have prevented us completely from doing it. But it was also that it's a relatively small market. Moncton is only 160,000 mm-hmm. people. St. John's probably mm-hmm. a little smaller too. So there's really kind of a cap to how much we can grow and how much we can make. And we started seeing it more and more. It's like we were hitting the same addresses over and over again, but there's Slows only... Exactly. There's only so mm-hmm. many that you can do. So we realized we, we need to go after a bigger market or we need to do something different. And that's when we shifted towards self-storage. We also kind of got over the whole like management and dealing with tenant part <laughs> kind of wore us off a lot. So we were trying to find an asset tab that was similar to multifamily, but without the tenants. I, I love your guys' mindset that you're like, you see that there's an issue there and you immediately make the change. Uh, and or you're looking at like we have a certain growth target we want to achieve and doing that within this size of market, it's possible, but way more difficult. If I go to a market 10 times the size, there's 10, si- 10 times the opportunity. We talk about that a lot off off mic. I want to go back to one thing quickly about the wholesaling um, because this is something that I'll say I face, we faced. When you're doing wholesale deal, the part that makes me sweat, I don't sweat about getting someone to buy it. I, once I get someone to buy it, I'm concerned about them actually going through on the deal and or the seller being like, yo, what the hell? I'm selling you this place. So how did you guys work with that? Were you mm-hmm. ed- mentioning to your sellers that, hey, yo, like this is what we do? And then on the flip side for your buyers, were you taking big deposits? Did you ever have an issue where someone on closing day was like, yeah, I, I don't got, I'm not closing on this. And then you guys are like, shit, I'm holding the bag because I have an APS lined up with my seller sure. and I have to now close on this. So so how we communicate with the seller is right away, like we tell them this is not for everyone. Um, if you don't care about the price um, and you just want the convenience, you want the speed, you can work with us. We essentially buy 60 cents on the dollar. Um, and we work with our You tell them that? We literally tell them that. We do. We tell them if you want the max price. Who are these people? These are the people <laughs> who are going through it. They're truly, truly motivated, mm-hmm. right? If you're not yeah. truly motivated, then you won't take this offer. And that's that's the only people that we want to work with, son. people who are truly yeah. motivated. And we literally tell I'll them. give me 60 cents on the dollar for your portfolio. But, <laughs> <laughs> so guys, we literally tell them, here's a list of realtors that we work with. And this is before Lynn got her license, right? We literally tell them, here's a list of brokers that you can, you can talk to. They're going to come in. They're going to give you assessment. You know, that process might take longer. But you're going to get the max price because you can get your property in front of more eyeballs. To give you an example, like we, mm-hmm. we closed on this, uh, you know, triplex, that landlord just really didn't want to bother any of the tenants. And we later found out that, you know, he was also hiding a lot of issues. So he just probably mm-hmm. didn't want a lot of people mm-hmm. to go through the property to, to see, to do an inspection. He just wanted mm-hmm. a quick and easy sale, right? So we're able to pick mm-hmm. up this triplex for around 140,000. And that was actually a property we decided to keep with Dream Venture Partners money. So that was a full mm-hmm. burn because like, we got refi at like 400,000. Uh, but, you know, granted, it was a lot of issues that we had to deal with. And the seller right, fully right. knew that, right? So so that's why, you know, from the get-go, we set the expectation straight. We tell the seller, hey, this is what we're planning to do, right? Uh, we we are professional real estate investors, so we are not, you're not going to get the max price selling it to us. But if you want that convenience, if you want that speed, we can even close with cash. But that comes at a price. Yeah. If you want the max price possible, talk to a realtor. So where were you getting your, your cash in these early days? It was Dream Venture, Dream Venture Partners, right? right. Um, I went to business school in, in Montreal. I'm in my late 20s. A lot of my friends are late 20s, early 30s. They're CPAs, business consultants. Uh, they, they live in Toronto, work in Toronto. 
and they they can't afford anything in Toronto, and they just don't yeah. even have the yeah, cash money sitting in the accounts. That's and they're right. looking at yeah. those prices. They're like, okay, between like the three of us, we could probably scrounge together one hundred and forty thousand bucks, right? Like one way or the other, lines of credit, whatever you make it, you make it happen. That's right. Um, if you can, if you can prove the the spread on it, um, you can make it work. Yeah. The interesting thing um, is that we were, sorry, we were offering them to like work with us through doing a burr, right? So whatever money they put in, they'll get it back out right away. Plus the property, once it's uh, refinanced, still the the, um, the cash flow is still sufficient and we are able to pay off the property only with the rents. So there was no additional money they had to put in. So it's really just put your money in for a couple months. We do the burr, get all your money out, plus a little bit of profit and the property is still cash flowing. So that, that was kind of like easy sell. Would you take full ownership of the property at that point or, or you'd keep it with them? Oh, we, we keep, keep it, it with them. them. Yeah, they maintain an equity stake. So now we're just about to go down to why you, like, your stuff in the States and the self-storage. How many units did you end up accumulating in New Brunswick before you guys said, screw this, we're going to the city that never sleeps? We sold a couple. I think in terms of transactions, we were probably close to like 80 transactions in total, including wholesaling. But Jesus. the ones that and that's we, over two years? Three years? years? That's over two and a half years, yeah. And so then, it's like... Every week yeah, it was go, go, go. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Jesus. Um, but when it comes to the ones we kept, after selling some, we're probably close to like 35 units now in total. Okay. And those are all in New doors Brunswick? Doors or, or 35 structures? Doors. Doors, yeah. And and you plan to keep those now long term? Like, I'm excited to change to Las Vegas here in a second, but... Um, <laughs> this like, applies for a lot of people here. Like, so. like do you think you might liquidate some of those? Yeah. Like you Or... or that that's a great question so you know some of the properties we decide to keep them because they're sitting on adjacent lots right we have a six bikes and a duplex right next to each other and they're sitting on r3 zoning so we have the opportunity to do a multi-story multi-family development later on if we want to demolish it cool. we also have portfolio mm-hmm. you know we have i think seven or ten doors like sitting in the downtown moncton area which uh, the government is going to do uh, the atlantic science enterprise center it's a 700 million dollar project um, and it's literally like less than a half a mile away. Um, so, mm, so we nice. were very strategic about which property we want to keep and which properties we wanted to offload. So everything that mm-hmm. we kept so far, it's honestly, you know, properties that we're willing to hold on to for the next like 10 to 20 years. I lied again. I have one more question. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> do you think someone today can do this in New Brunswick market or Nova Scotia market still? Or do you think there was a unique opportunity due to what was going on during COVID? I think... It depends on what they're looking for. Uh, There's definitely still very good deals to get in New Brunswick. And if you're comparing that to buying in Toronto, I would say go to New Brunswick any day. But in terms of the returns that we were able to get and the fact that we could do a full burr, it might be a little harder to do it now, especially with Mm -hmm. how interest rates are going. So Mm -hmm. it would be harder today, but I think it's still possible. It's also still better than Toronto. What what was really interesting, Mm -hmm. guys, like when it comes to wholesaling, if you think about wholesalers in Ontario, like, you know, we're... We're part of this mastermind, um, you know, with, with North America's top wholesalers in really expensive markets. They can wholesale single families. They can wholesale townhomes for, you know, six figure wholesale fees. Um, but in New Brunswick, forget it. Like your ARV is mm. only like 300,000, right? For a single family house. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if we come across any single families, it's actually really hard for us to wholesale. Uh, so we were essentially in a right. position where we had to find multifamilies only because our most of our buyers were coming from out of province. And for them to travel that distance, to, to buy remotely, to, to go through other trouble, they want at least like a fourplex, right? So even though it was like very much blue ocean strategy, we're like, oh, there's nobody doing New Brunswick. Let's go into New Brunswick and dominate the market. We did, but we realized we had to essentially do the hardest way possible. Uh, we, we literally had to only wholesale multifamilies. And any singles that we came across, we would either do Airbnbs, which is short-term rental with them, or we do a quick flip. But there was really nothing substantial that would come from you know single family leads. So to answer your question, I would say you know if you want to create a substantial like sustainable wholesaling company, if you want to do that purely as a business, definitely going mm-hmm. to a bigger market. But you know if you want cash flowing you know multifamily leads, there's a lot of that in, in New Brunswick. Right on, right on. Yeah, I mean there was that time like you got into this when everything was boom times and and everything was great and the trajectory was up. Um, I find it really interesting that you went to Las Vegas and switched to storage lockers as things start going down. Um, so why, why don't we just yeah, dive into that and tell us how that evolved. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you following investor girl, Britt? 
We we do. Yeah, he, she's partner <laughs> with uh, AJ Osborne. Yeah, That's yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So. Yeah. How we came across even self storage as a concept was, you know, we were down in Florida for a wholesaling mastermind, and then we found out there's a self storage event going on, and we we're like, you know what, let's go check it out. Let's see what this is all about. So we came across a group of Americans in their fifties and sixties. They've been doing multifamily for the past probably twenty years. Um, they were, you know, absolutely financial financially free. They were looking for an exit out of their portfolio because, you know, their kids didn't want to handle, you know, hundreds and thousands of tenants. Um, their, you know, family didn't really want to carry on, you know, a multifamily portfolio. They felt like it's too much of pain in the butt. And that happened to be a self-storage event, as I said. So Lynn and I, we realized, huh, like if these Americans are already at where we want to be in a couple of years and they're looking to exit and they think that self-storage as an asset type, you know, it, it makes a lot more sense for them to carry on as a legacy. Why don't we look deeper into that? So that was March of 2021. Wait, sorry. No, that was March 2022. So that was pretty much, you know, it's exactly a year ago. Yeah. And for the past year, we were just looking for the best way to enter the self-storage market. So even in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, because we consider that to be our home court, we actually, you know, did the exact same ownership lookup. We looked up every single self-storage facility, um, not even for sale. We looked up every single facility that was out there in the inventory in New Brunswick mm -hmm. and Nova Scotia. We reached out to all the owners. And we found out that most of them are mom and pop. Um, sorry, most of them mm -hmm. are owned by corporations and REITs. Oh. But the mom mm -hmm. and pop ones, they're really, really yeah. insignificant. They're really, really tiny. And they're what's considered yeah. C-class or F-class uh, portfolios, right? So mm -hmm. even if you do a value add, it will be the same as doing a value add on the on the load of duplex. Like, there's really not a whole lot of meat on the bone. And it's mm -hmm. really hard to compete against the other corporations, the corporately owned uh, products. Comparing to the US, right. in the US, what we realized when we did the same market research is over 70% of the, the self-storage facilities down in the US are owned by mom and pop operators. The REITs like Public Storage, CubeSmart, they only control less than 20% of it and they're aggressively trying to buy. They're aggressively building, aggressively um, acquiring because they want more market shares, right? It's a really fierce competition mm -hmm. down here. So what we realized is that, okay, we can come in as mom and pop operators, but we're building a product that REITs want to purchase and want to manage. Yeah. They also offer yeah. property management services, right? So we essentially saw a market opportunity because they're trying to expand their market shares. We can build the very product they, they want to buy. So that will give us the biggest exit potential, but at the same time, we'll be competing against, you know, 70% of the mom and pop operators. So that's why we right. decided to come down to the US um, you know, other than, you know, it's 10 times the population, they're just way bigger markets on here. But also we just see that, you know, that strategy of selling to a REIT, building something that REITs want to manage and buy, that can really only be done uh, in the U.S. because of how fragmented the market out here is. Interesting. Very cool. I think you get to wet our beaks a little bit here now. We need to know, what are you building these things for per square foot? And what are you selling them for per square foot? Get us all excited and depressed really that we're still working here. <laughs> I love sharing these numbers because when you compare them to multifamily, people are always like, what? Yeah. How, how is that even possible? So in terms of price per square foot, um, depending on different factors, but it's anywhere between 70 to $112 per square foot. That's how much you'd be building them for. Amazing. Multifamily here down in the U.S., right? Yeah, it's like multifamily third. down here, it's anywhere between. I know, right? Anywhere here is in multifamily here. It's anywhere between six hundred to thousand two hundred square foot, which is completely insane. It's, you do see Christ. the big difference. Yeah. So we'll build these facilities. Uh, usually, they're anywhere. They're close to a hundred thousand square feet, uh, seven hundred to nine hundred units uh, of storage, and they cost us anywhere between like twelve to fifteen million dollars to build. What's rent per square foot? And then foot? once they're fully built, sorry. So Sorry? what's rent per square foot on these? Yeah, so we're building in um, markets with, you know, really, really solid rents. So usually $2 per square foot. That's, uh, you know, those okay. are the markets we're building in. Um, and okay. how much to sell them for? Um, usually the stabilized value, they're anywhere from 175 to around $220 per square foot. Uh, but REITs okay. are buying them at an even more compressed cap rate, right? So the fair, you know, what, what's considered a market cap rate for an A-class wow. facility, it's around 5.5%. But REITs have been buying them at, you know, 3%, 4%, uh, which is pretty nuts. So that's probably because they see this is one of the few like recession resistant real estate plays in the sense that like people lose their home and they put all their crap in storage. <laughs> like, um, 
Absolutely. Yeah. But, uh, where are you? If you look at it historically in 2008, comparing to like industrial buildings, office spaces, uh, and multifamily, it's the only one that was still yielding a positive return during that recession right. time. So mm-hmm. a lot of these REITs are realizing, hey, we're, the market is shifting. We're getting towards a recession. This is the asset type that we want to be invested in because it's going to be a lot more recession resistant than it would be for other um, real estate asset types. You know what I've always thought of it was like in my head? You know how on our phones or on our TVs at any given time, we have six or seven apps running in the background that we what forget that we're paying for month to month. Yeah. Like we kind of forget that like, oh yeah, I, I do have a Disney plus for the kids. Like I do have Amazon prime. I do have Netflix. Like I do have this app that lets me edit photos for my Instagram. Like, and they just gently drip you, but it's cumulative. And because these storage lockers month to month don't seem that expensive and they just drip out of people's accounts you're going to say they drip you, you know, and, and then their alternative <laughs> is like, do you want to forfeit all of your goods? Right. Or do you want to h- hire the moving truck to get it out of there? And the moving truck costs money. Yeah. Right. Like, so it's, it, it, it's, it's a yeah, pretty there's, hard There's a market break. need for it, but sometimes it does seem a little. There's also like less restrictions on like, well, there's no rent caps. There's no uh, eviction process. It's like, you didn't pay your stuff is done. Like it is, it is cut and dry. I, yeah. I, I'm it's, so glad some people pay more in go ahead, sorry. I say some people pay more in rent than I think what the stuff inside may be worth. Oh, for sure. hundred <laughs> percent. But see, oh yeah. I'm so glad you touched on the consumer behavior part because that's usually the part I'm trying to get, you know, listeners or, or people to understand. It's usually if you look at the balance sheet of, you know, however American or Canadian household spends every month, the most expensive item is usually the rent or the mortgage, right? So whenever that shoots up, it's almost like alert, 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 like, be careful, like, you, you look for another place ASAP, or, you know, try to find a way to yep. bring down that cost. But everything else, like self storage unit, a 10 by 10, it costs less than a car insurance. So people don't really think about it, right? Like, it doesn't really hit mm-hmm. you as hard. So that's why REITs professionally managed facilities. If you, you know, you or any of the listeners ever rented a self storage facility from an A class facility, they're going to see their rents are increased probably every eight to 10 months, because REITs understand that. And they're you know, as exactly like you said, there's no rent cap. Um, and so it's very easy to to raise the rent. But at the same time, you have the economy of scale, right? You, The facilities we're building, they're around 700 or 900 units. So we're talking about, you know, a $20 increase across around 700 units. That plays a mm-hmm. huge effect on the NOI. And obviously, you know, at mm-hmm. a 5.5% cap, that's millions of dollars of valuation increases. <laughs> Yeah, and what you're saying effectively is someone goes, oh my gosh, I can't believe this thing went from $83 to 92 bucks, but huh, who cares? It's like, well, no, that's actually like a 12% increase. And this is the funny thing, man. Like people go nuts when the rent goes up $200. And it's like, man, your gas went up, you know, $800 a month this mm-hmm. last, last year. Mm-hmm. Your grocery bill went up $400 a month, but people don't see it, right? But they see the rent because it's the big ticket item that comes out. It stands out, boom, there Singular the payment. Like, and also in the same way, people don't go down and they don't look at, Gosh, what all came out of my account this month? Oh, damn! Look at that Netflix bill. Look at and add it together. They don't. They don't do it. They, right? They only see the big ticket items. So the thing with self storage as well, people don't press shop. Lynn and I, we just sold a flip uh, in Moncton, um, and we it was super stressful because I had to deal with my my mom that was driving around. She didn't speak a word of English <laughs> or French, so she was the one helping us move. <laughs> and we essentially, long story short, we had to rent a U-Haul, and we were willing to just put it. The, the, we had to rent the self-storage and we weren't even price shopping at all, right? Because yeah. you're just looking yeah. for whatever's the closest to you or wherever you can retain yep. the truck. So that's exactly what self-storage builders and operators also consider. So we're looking in the five-mile radius, you know, as the market that we're targeting. So that means, you know, if we can essentially, like, we, we can essentially price scout, right? Like, we can very much increase the rent to market but the consumers are not even going to feel that. They're not going to go from, you know, CubeSmart to Publish Storage to another mama pop to compare mm-hmm. which rent is the lowest. They're just going to go to whatever is the most convenient to them. So that's why mm-hmm. there's so much more opportunities when it comes to self-storage, as long as the market is not saturated and all of that is data-driven, right? So you're able to calculate from a five-mile radius exactly what the population is, how many competing stores are currently there, and what's the net rentable square foot that's currently available in the market. We compare that to the to the national average, and we compare that to the state average, and that's how we, you know, it's like the back of napkin math. I realized, okay, this market, in theory, it should be fairly underserved, and then we compete mm-hmm. another feasibility study. We hire a professional consultant. 
we put on you know property management to run their real time data to to see okay if we build a self storage facility here how long would it take to lease up is it feasible as a project so everything is very much data driven because of the consumer behavior that we're just talking about is there more access to this data in the states because one of the things here with privacy in Canada it's so hard to get some of this info it's so different it's insane in in Canada, there's really not much that you have access to. We kind of found a way around it, but most people don't necessarily have access to data like this. Mm-hmm. In the States, I feel like everything is very data-driven and everybody has different ways of capturing that data. So we use multiple platforms that give us all of the information that we need. There's SoreTrack, there's CoStar, there's, I could name but, a couple more. There's, there's see, quite a few. Again, that's the thing. The data privacy laws, like for multifamily, for single family, sure. But self-storage, it's actually like, it's a business, right? So you're not really invading anyone's privacy. Even more transparent. It's mm-hmm. very yeah. transparent. So I, you know, the same tools that Lynn just described, like StoreTrack, you can actually create a free account right now and find out the saturation levels in Halifax in the three-mile radius. Interesting. Yeah, so that fully cool. works in Canada as well uh, because we're in the self-storage market, right? It's it's commercial real estate mm-hmm. asset. Um, but ownership data, yeah, it's going to be a little different. Ownership data, it's a lot easier to find out in the U.S. compared to in Canada. I want to go back because that is super interesting. I want to go back a little bit to the numbers just at a high level. We were saying you're building for, let's say, about 100, 110 bucks a square foot. In comparison, I'd say apartments go for three to six hundred dollars a square foot to build. Um, For anyone who's listening to they're renting for two dollars a square foot where residential might rent for three to maybe four dollars a square foot. So you're spending three to six times as much to build and you might be getting one and a half to two times the rent for residential. So again, this is why storage makes a ton of sense, especially on a cash flow perspective. And there's a fair number, I'd say a lot less moving parts involved in operating, running um, utilities wise on, on that side. So you can also have a, your capital, your capital is even, your, yeah, yeah. your expenses are even lower as well. Um, where are you finding the land? Are you using the same sort of systems? Like there's softwares available that can allow you to hunt for land that's zoned, to actually build it? Because that's one thing I found here when I looked around to build storage is industrial land is not something that you can easily come by, especially because I think across North America, there's been a warehouse boom uh, with so many different companies requiring warehousing just with the way our shipping models are and the way the real estate industry has been. Everyone needs a warehouse. And so there's just not cheap industrial land available that I can I can put these things on. So to bring the matter even worse, we actually look for commercial and light industrial land. So we can't even go to industrial industrial land because the self-storage facilities we're looking to build, we don't want it to be in, in the back of an industrial park, right? We want it to be right, right. there, right next to a grocery store. or right next to, right. you know, uh, where, where their dentists are. So we actually are looking for usually like, it's usually part of a commercial plaza or right off a highway where there's extremely high visibility with high population density. So because of that factor, it's actually, it makes it even harder to find commercial land where the price per square foot makes sense for us to build. So that's why, you know, a lot of the primary markets uh, in Canada, even secondary markets in Canada, you're going to see a lot of REITs in that space. There's very few mom and pop Mm -hmm. operators that's able to develop in in the market like that. But however, in the U.S., you know, we're developing a site, you know, we're looking at a site in in Dallas, we're looking at a site in Houston, you're paying anywhere from, you know, $4, $5 per square foot. So that makes it, you know, a lot more feasible as a project because you can't overpay for the land, right? But to answer your question, how we look for land, we pay for CoStar, right? We, we have that CoStar uh, membership to to look for on-market and also off-market land opportunities. We also got to check the FEMA. We check all of that. But a lot of it is also based on relationships. It's based on, you know, the masterminds we're a part of. It's based on the brokers uh, that, that we constantly meet at these self-storage events. But also whenever we travel to a new city for work, we, you know, usually go to the local real estate meetups. We talk to people about self-storage concept. And whenever we found out, you know, they're a broker, even if they're a single family real- a realtor, chances are like they might come across land that they don't even know what to do with, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so that's why we have this printout of uh, what's called a buy box for our group. And we tell them exactly the criteria that we have for land to really make it simple for them. Um, that, so, Smart. but yeah, that's, that's honestly the hardest part. And as we grow our venture, I think in the future we can, you know, start almost like an off market uh, division where we, we can have someone and their only job is to look for land. And, and we, yeah. you know, we came across, we, we met the public storage team at the trade show and we actually met the acquisition team for public storage. And we found out that's literally, they have a team of people that drive up and down the street, look for vacant lots. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Craziness. Um, so how long have you first, you know, 
when, when, when did you make the move to Las Vegas and, and start this next chapter? About seven, eight months okay, ago. Okay, so still. That's when we moved to Vegas. We, we started kind of like structuring this venture prior to us moving here. But then we decided that if we truly want to focus and commit to this, we have to be here. We have to be able to network with people. And Las Vegas was a very strategic decision because it's easy to fly in and out. The flights from Las Vegas and into Las Vegas are a lot less expensive. Um, it's also, uh, there's a lot of networking events that happen here. There's a lot of trade shows that we can go to. A lot of the self-storage association trade shows happen in Vegas. So that gives us easy access to that. Um, we meet so many different professionals and there are a lot more higher level people that we've been able to network and meet here because Las Vegas is such a, a destination for all these professionals, especially when they have trade shows and other events happening here. So Multiple reasons why. Also, there's no taxes on mm -hmm. um, corporate or, or no provincial taxes on the corporate or personal side, Imagine. which was a, a big plus as well. That sounds good. Yeah. So smart so people move from places like reasons. New Brunswick to Las Vegas because <laughs> of stuff like that. That's why we lose <laughs> smart people. Um, so did you already have a deal in place prior to coming down there? Like when was your first deal and what was it in the States? We, we didn't have a deal when we first came down here. Uh, we were part of this mastermind where you know, we were constantly learning and it was purely from an educational standpoint and also networking standpoint. That's why we moved down here. We realized, hey, we got to be in the U.S. to really understand, you know, the, the, the macros of, of the market mm -hmm. and also this asset type. And we are so glad we did because it, it, it elevated us to another level. And I'll give you one example. Like one of the networking events, we got to meet this gentleman by the name of John Lopez. Um, so shout out to John. But What's really interesting about what John is doing, he actually, he calls himself a fund manager. So he doesn't, you know, he's not a, an active operator in the sense that he's actively burning, he's actively flipping properties or, or you know, doing multifamily. He is partnering up with operators and he's coming in as a fund manager. He manages other people's funds. He manages around $10 million and he partners up with operators. And he essentially tells us, hey, this is usually what we look for. We're interested in self-storage, but this is how we look at it from a fund management level. So the, the, the initial thought of uh, internal rate of return to time value of money, we really learned that from talking to him. And we never thought of it that way, right? Because when you think of a bird, when you think about pitching a bird to an investor, you're just like, hey, you're going to get all of your money back. Here's your cash and cash return. Here's your cash flow, all of that. But once you think as a fund manager, you think about, okay, there's so many different exit strategies that we can have within the software development. You can sell it as CEO. You can sell it at entitlement. You can also sell it at stabilization. But which point of exit is going to bring in the most value for the time that you hold the investor's money for? Right. So we never thought right. of it that way, which is really powerful. So right now, how we structure our deals is like, I feel like it's probably because we're in Canada and we get hit with that capital gain tax. Linda and I, we never mm -hmm. wanted to sell a property unless we had to. Mm -hmm. But in the U.S., we have 1031 exchange, right? You can defer that tax, right? Neil's favorite thing. That's right. So because of that, no tax, what up? deals are moving constantly. They're changing hands constantly. So it's actually a good thing. A lot of times, like my, you know, we're just talking, discussing this with our internal team member. We thought we we're going to hold on to the deal that we're doing in El Paso, Texas until, you know, uh, we thought we we're going to hold on to it indefinitely, but realize it's actually better for us if we sell it at year three, combined to if we do the refinance process and we sell it later yeah. on. So it's a huge mind shift for, mindset shift for us. So, so that's why, you know, these are the kind of things I feel like there's no way we could have learned that in New Brunswick. The, all the events we go to, you know, there's a bunch of flippers. That model that model's not even available. Yeah, New it's Brunswick. not available here because you, you would get killed. I mean, now they're literally saying, like, you can't turn the properties over too quickly or else we're going to hit you with a harder oh tax. <laughs> right? Like, they're, they're literally, like, you know, this, this flipping tax that we're doing here, here nationally which now, which... What it does is it inherently makes reduces. It more yeah, it makes things more expensive because you have less turnover in the market. Like you actually get real price stabilization in the states for unit cost, right? Be it be it multi unit or these storage lockers because there's so much turnover. So it really stabilizes and, and comes to uh, a band pretty consistently, as opposed to like making people hold stuff longer. Then you have less trades, less transactions, and things go a little bit more extreme, right? Yeah. So I think last couple questions I have was. Um, where you guys are getting the money to do this project you're working on now, but it sounds like, are you partnering with Lopez or what's, what's going on there? 
<laughs> we're actually we're, we're we're for the cup for these couple of deals that are are that we're taking on. It's going to be through a syndication level because we really want to test out our team first and make sure that we can get a couple done prior to starting um, a real estate fund. So sure. we really just are doing syndications right now, testing our teams, making sure that we're working with the right partners. Um, so it's we're raising uh, from Canada and from the U.S. as well, and we're opening up to both sides. And then eventually, once we have these team member tested, then we can start a real estate investment fund. And we'll do the same thing as Lopez is doing. We'll basically have a fund where we can have people's money invested in it. And we can use that to do multiple developments at a time so we can scale much faster. Okay, interesting. And so let's let me hear about this so the fund. How are you guys pitching that? What's what's your idea there with that? What are you kind of telling people what can they expect for returns? Is there lock-in periods on their money? What what's what's your pitch? Take my money. Sell so, me. Huh. To be <laughs> So to be consistent with SEC laws, I don't think we can openly start sharing returns just yet. Okay. Um, but we can tell you that the plan is is to make it as profitable as possible for our investors, especially because it's going to be a new fund. We're going to make it even more interesting by charging less fees, by giving them a bigger uh, piece of the pie as well on the return side. So that's what we can say. But just to be compliant with the SEC laws, I don't think we can go too deep into how <laughs> okay. much we're actually okay. giving. But, but Sorry, what's guys. really cool... I have, no, I have no money available right now anyways. It's okay. Damn it. <laughs> Why do you go on this podcast then? I'm just kidding. Yeah. But, but what was really cool about this is uh, we're essentially building a product, right? We're building a product, as I said, for around $75 to $120 per square foot. But we are, we have published storage. We have to reach public traded companies as property managers. So as you drive down the street, especially in the U.S., you see public storage, you see CubeSmart, you see extra space, these massive companies, they don't necessarily own them 100%. A lot of the times they're just property it's like the managers. hotel industry. Exactly. Yeah. So that's essentially what we're building. Yeah. So we're mitigating the risk by having professional property managers to run them. But at the same time, even to get it built, there's around $200,000 of due diligence costs that Lynn and I, you know, our group, were fronting to really make sure that, you know, um, the feasibility study is done, the, the Lisa velocity, the, the revenue projections, all of that is done even getting the architect, getting entitled, working with the city. There's so many eyes that are underwriting this because a like, bank is not just going to give you a $8 million loan to do whatever you want, right? They're going to see you have a solid team and that you're working with the best possible people and all of your data is accurate and on point to even process a loan for you. So because we're doing a deal of this size, it actually mitigates our risk to a minimum compared to what we're doing before in New Brunswick. So that's probably the biggest value mm-hmm. proposition that we have. Um, for our investors to like say they can invest in the product that that's usually just only for the big boys right so 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 that's really yeah. our whole mission of doing this fund as well is like to to be able to to enable retail investors to get into an asset type that usually REITs are operating it right mm-hmm. got it mm-hmm. that's neat my final question for you is immigration to the states how did you usually you're supposed to marry somebody that already lives down there I know we were already married, so we couldn't do that. <laughs> what a bummer! Mm-hmm. <laughs> what uh, um, what program are you guys going through? <laughs> it's all process. There's different programs. Uh, I think the easiest for us is really to go through the investment side. So if we invest um, a substantial amount of money into an active business in the U.S., we can get an E2 visa, which is an investor yep. visa, out of it. Yep. That gives us five years in the U.S. and we can go in and out as we please. We can live here. Um, the spouse of the applicant also gets a work permit if they want to. The kids will get um, uh, uh, student permits as well. So there's there's a lot of benefits through going that way, but you're not a res- permanent resident, so it's a non-immigrant visa. The other options for people who want to deploy more capital, who can afford it, is to do, go through the EB-5 process. Yeah. So you invest a minimum of $800,000 into a development project, and that's if the project is in a targeted employment area. If it's not, then it's closer to a million and, and something, a million yeah. something that you have to invest into it. And that would give you a permanent resident that will give you a green card. So then you're, you can live in the U.S., stay there, do as you please as a permanent resident. So we chose the E2 route because it was less expensive and we can use our money to reinvest into our uh, self-storage side. How much is the E2? I was aware of the the EB5, which I think it's around one. I think it was one one, uh, like around the start of COVID. I think it's I think it's now one point two five or one point three now. Yeah, yeah. But so how much? To, yeah, up to one point two. Yeah. So how much now is a is an E2? So there's no actually there's no minimum number. A set by the by USCIS, you don't have a set number, but most lawyer would recommend that you invest at least a hundred thousand. And okay. they also tell you that it's proportional to how much the business costs. If you're getting a loan, then you do want to make sure that your investment is 
way bigger than how much you're getting as a loan. So you definitely want to avoid loans. You want to make sure that you also own at least 50% of that active business that you're purchasing. Um, And it's, it's, it has to be proportional to the value that you're creating or to the value of the business. So it's really, there's no exact number. Yeah. So are you saying that you kind of want a small business? Yeah. Yeah. You're saying that you purchased a business there or you kind of founded this? No. So we're still, yeah. We're still in the process of, of finding the right business. So okay. we're kind of conflicted because when you're going small business, you do have to be very involved in the day-to-day mm-hmm. and we don't want it to be a distraction from our development deals. But also if you go with the bigger business that's more stabilized, that you can have employee running it, then you do have to spend a lot more money and we kind of yeah. want to keep our capital to reinvest into self-storage. Can you buy so it and just sell it? we're kind of still figuring <laughs> it out. Can you just buy it and flip it? <laughs> no. No? Okay. So your visa is tied to the Oof. business that you're purchasing. So if you sell oh, it, no then you, technically you don't have a visa anymore. Yet. Just marry someone, guys. I wonder, just, can you like buy something and then <laughs> shutter it and just basically say, no, we've changed to an online business that invests in... Um, well, they can't anymore now. You said it on here, Chandler. ...instead of like sells these artisanal soaps. <laughs> 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 Um, you could, it, there's a risk, but you right. could. And I would say, honestly, the best way of doing it is just to ask an immigration lawyer that would have most yeah. of these answers. Right. Uh, we're just still trying to figure it out. Yeah, no doubt. Why don't you buy like a garage door company and you sell yourself garage doors or like a, a steel fab company? <laughs> Those would be expensive is the thing. That's why. No, no, no. Like a small yeah. steel fab company, <laughs> six guys, they just tilt up steel all day. That'll be a hundred grand. And that's what you need. You guys well, are going to be, you're about to put up freaking 10,000, well, 100,000 square feet. That's true. And we, we really did thought about it. Uh, we really wanted businesses that were revolving around what we're currently building because then mm-hmm. it really serves us and helps us. But it's just finding the right business and then the mm-hmm. right location at the right price. It, it's it's a process. It does take some time. I wish For it was sure. that easy, man. I wish I could yeah. just Google it and be like, oh, yeah, yep, yeah. I'm buying this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Didn't, why don't you just listen to Neil here in two seconds? I, tell you what to do. I'll find you guys a steel fab company. I'm going to wholesale Let's it. Let's go. It's- yes. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Can you just uh, tell everyone where they can track you down if they feel so inclined um, and any of your your important details? I mean, we'll link them. People want to hop on YouTube and and take a look at the video if you're listening to this uh, through one of the podcast streaming things. We're going to put all their information here, but uh, if they want to reach out to you, what's the best way? We're, we're everywhere. Social media. My handle is Lynn, L-Y-N-E, Sairi, S-A-I-G-H-I. Martin, it's it's Martin May. Uh, and usually you'll see there's either a self-storage photo or it says self-storage investor. Mm-hmm. You, there's, you can't miss us. <laughs> right on. Um, we're, uh, our website is uh, mainly investment group. Uh, sorry, I think it's mainly properties.ca uh, for that one. We're on Instagram, Facebook. Um, okay. Yeah, kind of a little bit everywhere. Awesome. And everyone that follows us on Instagram, we'll make sure it's all linked and everyone can, can track you down. Yeah, thanks for coming on, guys, and reaching out. Yeah, it's awesome. Very interesting stuff, man. Love it. Love it. Great story. Thank you, guys. And everyone, thanks so much for listening. As always, please like, follow, subscribe. Throw some questions here in the comments, right? Maybe we can even get you guys to, to pop on and, and respond to some of the questions. Um, and yeah, if you know anyone that this might be of interest, share this episode to someone who's, who's looking at the same stuff because I think there's a lot of great content here. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much for watching the episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, press like. Don't forget to subscribe. But also check us out on Instagram and TikTok. You can find all the links below. Thanks again for checking us out. Broke, I had rich habits, uh. When I was broke, I had rich habits, uh.